to be glad about. Amen. A lot of people in the world today walking around, lip bottom lip dragging and sad and depressed and uh, looking like they drink pickle juice and lemon juice and things like that. But we got something to praise the Lord about. And so, oh say, but I'm glad. Thank you for that. Young people can be dismissed this time. The kids up to about fourth, fifth grade, however you uh, decide that, they can go back to uh, their classes and uh, get taught on their level. That's a blessing. While you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, that should be easy enough. It's the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, you look at the first book, the first chapter and the first verse, uh, starting at the first verse in Matthew chapter 1. An older grandmother <clears throat> brought her pastor a bag of peanuts every Sunday morning when she came to church. And it was nice, and he enjoyed it. And, and uh, so, But after a while, he said, you know, Mrs. Spencer, you're so kind. Uh, you don't have to do this. He said, enjoy them yourself. Uh, you don't have to always keep bringing me peanuts every Sunday. And she says, oh, that's okay. She said, I don't even have teeth anymore. I just suck the chocolate off of them and, of course, have to do something with the peanuts. you got to love grandmothers, amen? There's something special about grandmothers. Uh, they have sort of moved out of the rivalry of younger women and they make life uh, more about others. It's not all about them. Uh, there's just something special about grandmothers. Uh, she's the one who does not have the Facebook, but she still remembers your birthday. Uh, she's the one that you can almost always expect a card from and a gift. Uh, they do not take life quite so seriously. Grandmothers don't. I heard of one grandmother who had, had gotten a new stair lift installed, and so her grandson asked her, Grandma, how do you like your new stair lift? You know what those are, those chairs that move up and down. And, and she said, oh, it's driving me up a wall. I love grandmothers. Who here is a grandmother? Who is a great grandmother? In fact, uh, Lee and Joan, I think a couple of you there, Lee and Joan just had another great-grandchild, so we, uh, she's not here with us this morning, but she is a another great-grandmother. Just when a grandmother thinks her work is finished, someone calls her great, and it starts all over again. Only the best grandmothers get promoted to great. Now today, I am not here to talk about great-grandmother. By the way, it's been a whole new experience. A few years ago, I found myself married to a grandmother. Amen? Uh, never thought I'd live to see the day where I married a grandmother, but so now I am and and uh, that's a wonderful thing. But we're not talking today about great-grandmothers. We are talking about disgraceful grandmothers today, four of them. I want to look at them from the Word of God today, and I think we can learn something from them that will be a help to us. And uh, if you can uh, just uh, read with me at verse number 1 here of Matthew chapter 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham beget Isaac, and Isaac beget Jacob, and Jacob beget Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Pharez and Zerah of Tamar, and Pharez begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram. And Aram begat Abinadab, and Abinadab begat Nasson, and Nasson begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon begat Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begat Abia, and Abia begat Asa. And Asa begat Josaphat, and Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat 
Hoseas. <clears throat> we had eight children, and when we had started having children, we got a baby name book. I'm glad they didn't look like this. Amen? It's a little bit more difficult, but we'll work through it. Uh, I like John and Bob and Chuck and Bill. Those are easier to say. And Ozias, verse 9, begat Jotham, and Jotham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias. And Ezekias begat Manassas, and Manassas begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josias. And Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Zacchaeus begat Salthiel, and Salthiel begat Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel begat Abiud, and Abiud begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor. And Azor begat Sadok, and Sagot begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliad. And Eliad begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. I preach to you today on four disgraceful grandmothers. Father, I pray you'd help us in the next few minutes here. Learn from your word what you'd have us to, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We call this text a genealogy. It's usually a list of hard-to-pronounce names, and it's usually a list that when we come to it in our Bible time, let's just be honest, we skip over it because it doesn't really mean that much to us. We can't read half the words in it, and uh, so we tend to just kind of take it lightly. Uh, so it's, a, it's this portion of Scripture that we tend to overlook. It seemingly does not apply to us. Now, you'll probably not see these verses on your memory verse section of your bulletin is what I'm saying. We just tend to not spend as much attention on the genealogies. The structure is very simple. So-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so as we just read. It reminds me of a man who was asked to write a review on the phone book. And this is what he said. Great cast of characters. Weak plot. And that's what we could say really about genealogies. Great cast of characters, but a really weak plot. That's the way we feel when we read Matthew chapter 1. But understand this, friend. Genealogies were of vital importance to the Jews. They, were, uh, they paid much attention to genealogies. For instance, whenever land was bought and sold, they looked at the genealogical records and consulted them. Uh, they, the law specified that the priests had to come from the Levite tribe, and so they used genealogies to determine that. Genealogy also helped determine the heirship to thrones and the length of time that people would uh, spend on the throne and the families that were there. This explains why in Ezra chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 7, you have those lengthy lists of names as the people were returning from captivity because these records were and are very important to Jewish history. <clears throat> as the Jews reestablished in Israel, it was crucial for them to know who was who, and they did that through genealogy. Now, it establishes in our text today, <coughs> specifically what it does, is it establishes Jesus as a part of the royal family of David. There is no doubt that this is the central purpose of Matthew chapter 1. To a skeptical Jewish reader, no question would be more central in his mind concerning Jesus Christ than this, does he come from the family of David? Because that's what the Bible in the Old Testament said was absolutely necessary for the Messiah, Second Samuel chapter 7. Uh, God had said a thousand years earlier that the Messiah would come through the line of David. Now many other men uh, claimed to be the Messiah, but this was what they would go to and determine whether he was in the line of David. And if he wasn't, tough toenails, he wasn't the Messiah because he had to come through the line of David. 
That's why Matthew 1, it's interesting that David is listed first, even though he comes long after Abraham, uh, chronologically anyway. But the reason is that the crucial issue here was not, is Jesus a Jew, son of Abraham, but is he of the line of David? And that was what they determined here in this genealogy. That's why genealogies are so important. Now, Matthew did something that no other gospel writer did. In fact, this is highly unusual throughout the Bible, but he included women in the genealogy. It's not something you normally see in Jewish, Jewish genealogies. Now, if you're going to include women in the Jewish genealogy, if you, if you find that fact to be true, who would you think, first of all, should be in a Jewish genealogy list uh, if you go to pick out women of the Old Testament? I don't know about you, but the first thing I would think is probably the matriarchs. You have Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, these three patriarchs are all there, but not those women. In fact, this, by the way, reminds us that we choose differently than God chooses. Can I remind you of that? We choose differently than God chooses. All you have to do is go back to when Samuel visited Jesse's house and interviewed his seven sons before he got to David. God chooses differently than we do. But here we find four undeserving women who found a place in Jesus' family tree. As I mentioned, Jews don't normally include women in their genealogy. In fact, I heard about one Sunday school teacher who offered his boys in his class $100 for whoever would go to the Bible and first uh, be the first one to find the name of David's mother. Well, it's not there. You can't find it for a thousand or a million. It's not going to be there because it just doesn't list her. Uh, because that wasn't a high priority in Jewish history. The, they, by the way, can I remind you, and I say this often, but it is so true, the best thing ever to happen to women was Jesus Christ and Christianity. Still true today. Go to where Jesus Christ and Christianity are absent, you'll find much oppression uh, where it comes to women. Uh, so they traced their family tree from father to son. The bloodline carried through the man. This is also found in the New Testament uh, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where the Bible says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and so death passed upon all men, as, uh, find it exact, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Our sin nature passes through the man. I'd pause for joke there, but I'm not going to say a joke there. Sometimes I pick on certain people, but let's leave the men alone, okay? Let's give them a pass. But that's true. If you have a sin in your life, it is your dad's fault. It comes from the man. It's passed through the man. By the way, that's why this is vital for us to realize and recognize the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ didn't have an earthly father. And so Jesus Christ did not have a sin nature. Uh, if you are ever miraculously lucky enough to be born and not having a father, you can escape having a sin nature. But that's not true for any of us except for one who is immaculately conceived, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That was important. Uh, but these four women in Jesus' family tree are not accidental. They are listed by God's divine purpose. They are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. All of them are very unlikely people. In them we find a striking illustration of the gospel. Before God ever wrote the gospel through four men, he wrote the gospel through these four women. And I want to look at that today. 
it is surprising, or if it is, I should say, surprising that women are listed at all in a genealogy, and it is because that's unusual. It's flat out shocking when you look at who the four women are that are listed in the genealogy. All, let's talk about just a couple of facts about them, and then we'll look at each one individually. All four of these ladies are Gentiles. Uh, three of them are involved in some form of sexual immorality. Two are prostitutes, or are involved in prostitution. One is from a cursed people. One is an adulteress. All four, all four are in the line that leads to Jesus Christ. That's mind-boggling, isn't it? Considering who they are. Why would God include women like that on his list, on this list? One great abiding truth rings through the lives of all these uh, four women, ladies and gentlemen, today. You, your past does not determine your future. Your choices determine that. We are products of our past, that is true. But hey, friend, we don't have to be prisoners to our past. We can change and we can move forward different than we were yesterday. We see that in all three of these ladies. The first we're going to look at is Tamar. She's found in verse number three. And Judas begat Pharaoh and Zerah of Tamar. Her story is unknown to most of us. Maybe you know who she is if you've read in the Old Testament. She's found in Genesis chapter 38. We want to turn there now. We're just going to kind of highlight these ladies here. Uh, but Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, who was the son of Jacob, which made him the grandson of Abraham. Judah was a very self-absorbed kind of guy. He was the kind of guy that to change a light bulb, he just holds the bulb and expects the world to revolve around him. That's how he does it. This was Judah. He was a self-important, self-engrangelized type of person. Now, Judah had a son named Ur who married a Gentile woman named Tamar. Now, Ur was a wicked man as well as his father was. And so uh, God killed Ur, and then Judah instructs his next son, Onan, to marry Tamar in Ur's place. Now, this might sound odd to us today, but back then it was a common thing. It's called leveret marriage. It was begun in the time of Abraham, <coughs> where if, the, if a brother, uh, remember, women were not able to make their own way, and so if a, if a man married a woman, he was kind of responsible to the point that if he died, then his brother would step in that responsibility. It's called leveret marriage, so this was a common thing to do. But the, the, the uh, Onan here refuses to have children with her, and God takes him out too. The Bible says in Genesis 38.10, he slew him also. This left Tamar husbandless and childless, which was a twin curse in those days. Judah tried to place the blame of these deaths on Tamar, of all things. When he said in verse 11, Remain a widow at thy father's house till Selah, my son, be grown, lest peradventure he die also as his brothers did. So, Selah's not quite ready for marriage yet, but when he is ready for marriage, hopefully when I give him to you, you won't kill him too. That's what he's basically saying to Tamar. So as time goes on, she realizes that he has no intention to fulfill his duty to her by giving her a husband from this family. She panics, realizing she might never have children, which on that culture, again, is how a woman based her identity. She's impatient. She's unwilling to wait on God to supply her need, so she hatches a scheme. It is sheep shearing time in that uh, at this certain time she hatches this scheme. And this is a time of partying. It's a time of going and, and debaucherous living and all these different uh, things would go on. Think, uh, uh, you know, just <coughs> if men take a trip away uh, to a place like Vegas or different places like that, the type of things that might go on. This was what was happening here. And Tamar, 
She seems to have the makings of a spiritual woman enough to realize the importance of bearing a child from the Judaic line. So she has some idea of the importance of having a child through Judah's family, and uh, the, the, she knew something about the Messiah. And so now that she's not going to have any of his sons, this is what she's going to do. She decides to dress up like a prostitute and go to where Judah is going to be, puts herself in the path where he's going to come, and sure enough, Judah passes by, did not recognize her, but asks to purchase her services. He asks, uh, he offers one goat for her services. But she, <laughs> he's not walking around with a goat, understand? So she says, I don't see no goat. I need something to hold until you get that goat to me. And so he gives her his bracelets, his signet ring, and his staff in lieu of the goat. And he goes into her. Well, three months pass, and Judah tries to find this woman, sends his buddy, and he can't find her. Nobody can find out who she is and where she went. And so he kind of thinks, well, that's gone. My things are gone, and, and uh, the incident faded from his mind. Well, then the shocking news came in his neighborhood, gave the gossip something to wag their tongue about, that Tamar was pregnant, and Judah threw a hissy fit because this is a dishonor to his family. And so he demands that she is dragged in into the public square and she's going to be burned to death because she is a disgrace to his family. The picture is pretty vivid. She gets dragged in and she's just about to be uh, sentenced to her death and she coolly produces three items. What do you think they are? They're a staff, a signet ring, bracelets. And she says, by this man, I am with child. Judah's heart drops like a stone because he sees what's happening and he is humiliated as he should be and he correctly makes the statement she is more righteous than I. Judah's sin found him out but no one looks good in this story. Uh, this sounds like something you'd read in the National Enquirer. This sounds like something we read on magazines we don't read, amen? And uh, so here... We learn, though, that Tamar is still listed in the family of Jesus. Her story reeks of greed, deception, illegitimacy, prostitution, lust, whatever you can say about Judah, and that's not, nothing really good. You can't by any stretch make Tamar look much better. <coughs> Both of them were pretty rotten. What she did was evil, wrong, immoral, and that's all we know about Tamar. At the end, the story of her in Genesis 38. She's just a footnote in biblical history. The story is one of human frailty and human weakness. The sinfulness of our human flesh. Yet Tamar had two sons. The name of the first was Zerah, and the name of the second was Perez. And Perez ended up in the line of Christ. Judah and Tamar were included in the line of Messiah despite their wickedness. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a clear and strong message of the grace of God. Neither one of them deserved it, but both of them are on there. If she had not sinned, she hadn't, wouldn't be found in this passage of Matthew chapter 1. In fact, her moral downfall brought her into the lineage of Christ. Now that's amazing to me, but this story is all about the grace of God. In a very real sense, this is true of every saved person that's in here today, and if you're not saved, every person that needs to be saved in here today. 
uh, if you are in the family of God, it only happened when you realized that you were a sinner. Because Christ came to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. The thing that might have kept Tamar out of the royal family. Friend, that's the very thing that put her in the royal family. A man said to me one time, God can't save me. I'm too great a sinner. And many people feel that way. I've talked to more than one that feels that way about themselves. But the Bible says we can't be saved unless we realize that we're sinners. The very ones that are sinners are the ones that are candidates for salvation. That basic fact is set forth in the name and the character of Tamar. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief. So the gospel according to Tamar is salvation is all of God's grace for sinners only. God can take something out of the worst part of our lives and produce something good. Isn't that a blessing? What a wonderful thing. If God can work through a family filled with deception, filled with incest, prostitution, don't you think he might be able to work through you and through your family? Absolutely. I'm so thankful that God does not throw us away. Amen? That's a blessing. All right, let's move to woman number two. She's found in verse five. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. Rahab is mentioned eight times in Scripture. Six times it has attached to her name the harlot. How would you like that to be forever known as Rahab the harlot? I would think eventually she'd say, you know what? Just call me Rahab, okay? I mean, cut the rest of it off. But uh, Rahab, this wasn't all she was. She was a Canaanite, and they were hated enemies of Israel. You wouldn't think she'd have much chance of finding her name in Matthew chapter 1. Yet, when we read it, there she is. Her story is told in Joshua chapter 2. It's when Joshua sent two spies <coughs> into Jericho to spy the land, and they go into the city, and Rahab hid the spies. And then while she was hiding them at her house, on the roof of her house, there was a knock on the door and the king's men were there and she lied to the king's men saying that these spies had already left the city when in truth they were actually on the roof of her house. Uh, the king's men went back, went away for a while and she let them down and they went their way back to Joshua, uh, went out, let them down through a window uh, with a rope and they returned to Joshua. It's a great story, a lot of lessons, but don't forget that Rahab was a harlot. This was her trade. We also can't deny that Rahab told a bald-faced lie. That's really what she's best known for. So here we have a harlot, a Canaanite, and a liar. Is there anything good we can say about Rahab? Well, actually there is. Rahab was a woman of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 31 tells us, By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not. She had faith. Now this is interesting to me. In the process of the story, if you read the story of Rahab, she turns from idolatry and follows the true God. She turns from the people of the world and follows the people of God. She makes that decision, and she did so because she had faith. Uh, when the invasion came, she was spared. Uh, they had told her, when, when we come to attack, you, lay a, you, you hang a scarlet thread in your window, a scarlet rope, and we'll know which house to avoid, and we won't hurt you. And God saved her through faith. The second principle of the gospel is that salvation is received and lived by faith. God singles her, her faith out in Hebrews chapter 11. 
She saved herself with that scarlet cord hanging from her window, which is a symbol of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to escape judgment was through simple faith in Christ's blood. Well, Rahab married a man named Salmon of the tribe of Judah, and they had a boy, and they named him Boaz. Boaz then uh, became the grandfather, or the great-great-grandfather. Let me just break it down. Uh, uh, Rahab was David's great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. She was in the line of Christ, despite who she was and what she came from. That's an amazing thing to me. Here's the gospel according to two women so far. Salvation is for sinners, and then salvation is received by faith in Christ's shed blood. The principle we take from Rahab being listed in the family tree of Jesus is that in spite of what I have done, the Lord can renew me. He can take me to greater heights, take me to good things in my life, even though everything past has been awful and bad. That was Rahab, and she created a great legacy because she made the right decision. God, despite your failures, can renew you and take you to great heights. You don't have to let yesterday's failures, friend, define your tomorrows because failure is an event. Failure is never a person. Failure is an event, and you can get over it with God's help. Praise the Lord. Rahab. Thirdly, we have Ruth. We find her in verse 5 as well. The last part of the verse, Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. Ruth's problem was not of her own making. She just had the misfortune of being born a Gentile. She was, in fact, from the country of Moab, and they were under a curse. This takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 19, uh, with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. <clears throat> that day after Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, you know the story, Lot and the angels trying to hustle Lot out, and Lot and his wife and his two daughters are being hustled out of the city, and the angels said, whatever you do, do not look back. At Sodom and Gomorrah, it's a picture of us looking back at the world instead of looking forward for Christ. And we know the story, Abraham or Lot's wife turned around and turned into a pillar of salt. A Sunday school teacher was telling that story to a group of kids one time. And she told that what I just said. She looked, she turned around and, and, when, and then she turned into a pillar of salt. And that kid raised, a kid raised her hand and said, uh, that's nothing. This happened to us recently. My mom, she was driving. And when she was driving, she turned around and turned into a telephone pole. So that's a little different what we're talking about here. But she turned into a pillar of salt. Now, Abraham then and his, or Lot and his daughters went, found refuge in a cave. And when they did, this is where things take, take a turn south. The daughters obviously were affected by their time in Sodom and Gomorrah, a wicked, wicked place. And they hatch a scheme where they will get their father drunk. And on successive nights, they each sleep and become uh, expectant with a child of their own father. They father two, two boys, Moab and Ammon, which become the leaders of countries, the Moabites and the Ammonites, which were horrible enemies of Israel throughout the years. And so, uh, the, the, in fact, Deuteronomy 23.3 tells us that the Moabites were shut out of the congregation of the Lord. Don't miss this. God's own word shut Ruth out. She was a Moabite. She was shut out by God's own word. Isn't it strange, though, that a, the very woman that the law would shut out is found in the ancestry of the Lord Jesus Christ? The explanation is found in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. That's being told to Ruth. <coughs> Through the influence of her godly mother-in-law, 
Ruth determines to follow Jehovah as the Lord. In fact, her speech to Naomi is so excellent and so repeated and so well known that in many weddings today it is still used. Ruth chapter 1 verse 16, and Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, for whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God shall be my God. That's a very well-known passage to us. God, um, the, the law of God was against her, but she cast herself on God's mercy. Can I tell you today, friend, that salvation is for those that the law shuts out and mercy will let in. Uh, salvation is, here's a woman here who was shut out of the family of God by the law of God, but praise God, salvation is not of the law, salvation is of grace. The law cannot save and pronounce a sinner clean, but grace can. And grace is there for what the law cannot do. None of us can go to heaven by the law. You can try, and you can, you know, in fact, there's 362 commandments, but you can just take the 10 that we know so well and obey those 10 perfectly, never getting any of them wrong. See how long you can make it. I can usually do it till about the time I get out of bed, then I start struggling, you know. You, let's be honest, those are hard to keep all the time. And so, the law can't do it. Romans 8.3 says, for what the law could not do, and that's for all of us, in what it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. God did by grace what the law could not do by works. So the gospel according to Ruth here is salvation is by grace apart from the works of the law. Ruth tells us, the book of Ruth anyway, if you read that, it's a great romance novel by the way. If you like romance novel, can't do much better than Ruth. Talks about the love that blossomed between her and Boaz. Uh, she was a Moabite as he was an Israelite. They had a son uh, named Obed who had a son named Jesse who had a son named David. Ruth was David's great-grandmother. Uh, now that's a person uh, from the hated country of Moab who was cursed by God's own word, entered into the line of the Messiah. The principle we learn from this Gentile woman of Ruth is that with God's help, I can turn my back on my old life. Hallelujah. We can get beyond what we were. And we can say, along with Ruth, hey, I'm turning my back on, on uh, the uh, people of the world, and your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. What a blessing. And God did that for Ruth. You're never too old to start over. You've not been around the block too many times to deserve a second chance. Because God, praise the Lord, is not only the God of second chances. He's the God of 70 times 70 chances. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. With God's help, I can turn my back on my old life. We have one more lady to look at. Her name is Bathsheba. Now, she's not mentioned by name, but in verse 6, she's identified. David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. We know her as Bathsheba. <coughs> the story of Bathsheba's adultery with David is so well known, we don't need to repeat it here, go through the whole thing again. Suffice it to say that adultery was only the beginning. Before the scandal was over, it included lying, a royal cover-up, and eventually, ultimately, murder. As a, as a result, the child that was conceived that night died soon after birth. Eventually, David married Bathsheba, and they had another son, a son named Solomon, who became the wisest man who ever lived. It's quite a result 
uh, for a union that began in, a, in adultery. There's dirt all over this episode, but I don't want you to miss the point. Bathsheba made the list on Matthew chapter 1. That's an important thing to realize. The mention of Bathsheba immediately points to the, the sin of a child of God. Don't forget, David was called the man after God's own heart. That's who he was known as. He was a very close man to God. And God's promise was that the Messiah would come through the line of David. But then what happened? David sinned. Like pretty bad. He didn't steal a candy bar from 7-Eleven. He had adultery with a married woman, arranged that her husband would be killed, and then lied to cover it up. What about the promise of the coming Messiah? God's answer according, concerning his promise is found here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. That David and Bathsheba were both in the line of Christ. Despite David's weakness and sin, don't miss this, the glorious fact that we learn from Bathsheba is that God forgives. God forgives. Man, and does he forgive? Amen? Of all of our wickedness and sin, he forgives. When David reflected on his sin, he could have been speaking for both himself and Bathsheba when he said in Psalm 51, 17, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Uh, to put it plainly, God forgave a woman who had an affair and then married the man who murdered her husband. That's pretty bad. And that's a lot of grace because we serve a God of infinite grace. Amen? What a, what a clear example that God can forgive you. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. The principle that we learn from the story of Bathsheba is, is that there is no sin that you've committed that God cannot forgive. Hallelujah. It's a message that's needed today. Here's the plan of salvation that's enshrined in these four women. We have from Tamar, salvation is for sinners. We learn from Rahab that salvation is through faith. We learn from Ruth that salvation is through faith apart from the works of the law. We learn from Bathsheba that salvation is one of forgiveness and forgiveness and forgiveness again and again and again. Hey, that's awesome. When you read the stories of these four women, you aren't supposed to focus on the sin. You're not even supposed to focus on the women. You're supposed to focus on the hero of the story, which is God himself. His grace shines through the blackest of human sin and chooses flawed men and women to represent the line of Jesus Christ. Whew, that's good stuff, amen? The Bible's exciting things we learn in it. Good news today, friend. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He did not come to make you religious. He came to save you from your sin. He did not come to make you pious. He came to save you from your sins. He didn't come for moral reformation. He came to, be, uh, to give you eternal salvation. And as weird and as odd as it might sound, the worse you are, the better candidate you are for the grace of God. In some ways, grace is like deodorant. The ones who need it the most, they don't use it. They don't take advantage of it. There's no reason, friend, for you to be chained to your past. God's grace awaits you. He came to do for you what you could not do for yourself. The same grace that these women experienced, this is the greatest part of this whole passage, the same grace that they experienced is the same grace that's available for you and me today. He's still in the forgiving business. 1 John 1.9 is still in the book. 
If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord. <coughs> so, I'm going to ask you a question today. Have you ever felt unworthy? George Stansbury was talking to a group of Bible college students and he gave this illustration, and I quote, If you leave this service today and see a needy person on the street and give him a dollar, that is unmerited favor. You with me so far? If, he said, or he, he did nothing to deserve it. But if you leave here and go to your car and find a man breaking into your car to steal money and you give him a dollar, that is, the, uh, it, that is grace because it's the opposite of what he deserves. What does he deserve? A swift kick in the pants. Amen? And you get him out of your car. But you give him, anyway, that's grace. God gives each one of us what we do not deserve. That is grace. The truth is we're all unworthy and we're all undeserving of God's grace. And yet we see in this Matthew chapter 1 genealogy of Jesus, we see women as well as men. We see foreigners as well as Jews. We see prostitutes as well as moral paragons. And it helps us to understand there's a radical difference, don't miss this, between a religion that says if you live this way, God will accept you. That's religion. There's a vast difference between that and the gospel which says, because God has accepted you, live this way. It's a big difference, isn't it? Because we cannot earn, we cannot do anything to earn the gift of salvation. That is something that God, that God gives us so freely. Consequently, because of this, religion always leads to all kinds of conflict. Because if you pride yourself and make your identity on being a hard-working person, then you're going to look down on anyone who's lazy. If you base your identity on being an open-minded person, then you're going to uh, uh, feel superior to those of the, that you see as narrow-minded. If your identity is based on being a moral and religious person, then you will look down your nose on people that are worse than you. Because religion always leads to conflict, because religion automatically makes you feel superior. That's what religion does. That's what it's all about. On the other hand, when we come to Christ, we realize how wicked we are. We realize how undeserving we are. We realize that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There's nobody better than me. I'm better than nobody else. We're all sinners. We're all undeserving. From the greatest to the least, there is no difference. We're all equally lost, as, uh, whether we're a moral giant or a hitman for the mob. It doesn't matter. We're all equally lost until we come to Christ. So if we understand that, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. We are accepted. God loves you. He wants you in His family. Isn't that a blessing? You might not have... You know, you might have tried to get a loan at the bank, they reject you. You try to join this club, they reject you. You try to do this, they... But God will never reject you because He has come and to seek and to save that which was lost. Oh, listen here, friend. If you're here today and you've never accepted the salvation gift that God offers, don't leave today without uh, making that decision. You say, I'm too wicked for God to let in. Or maybe you're a Christian who says, I've messed up so God can't use me. There's four disgraceful grandmothers here who say, you're dead wrong because He used me. He can use you. Let's every, every head bowed, every eye closed. 
I don't know where this message finds you. We looked at four different people. Maybe you identify with one of the folks that we talked about, or maybe you get you can identify with the truths that we talked about. Uh, the true fact that sin, we're all sinners. We're all headed for a Christless hell unless we come to Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And so, of course, I would assume that most folks in here today have come to that decision already in their life. Well, then we have to deal with failures and we have to deal with mess-ups like David did <coughs> and getting to the point where we're supposed to do something great for God and that we have a horrendous, horrible moral failure. What to do? Know that God forgives. Would you stand along with me as she begins to play?